and God in his sovereignty and his work of salvation among sinners. After Jesus revealed that he was the bread of life and that believing in him would bring eternal life, the Jews listening to him reacted. I have heard some of these kinds of reactions over the years in different places that I've preached. I remember very distinctly preaching a sermon at a funeral in St. Cloud. And some of the statements I made literally brought sounds out of the crowd. Notice what it says. It says that their reaction was that of grumbling. They grumbled. Exactly what does that look like? The word means to make complaining remarks or noises under one's breath. You know what it, you know what it is, don't you? Because you've done it and I've done it. It's common to all people. You want me to tell you what it looks like? You hear something you don't like or you disagree with, and here's what it sounds like. Who does he think he is? That's grumbling. And it's not just necessarily to yourself. It can be to other people. You're looking at the guy next to you. Who does he think he is saying something like that? It's words and actions of displeasure or discontent that come from within. They come from the heart. And they come out of the mouth, but under undertones. I've heard it in gospel messages in different places. The discontent. I was preaching... Again, at a funeral. seems like these things happen at funerals more than anywhere else. I was preaching a funeral in St. Paul on John 14, verse 6. And I could hear sighs and I could hear... (sighs) I could hear it in the crowd. Just because I was preaching the gospel of Christ. This is what's happening here in this crowd. They are, they are displeased with what they hear. That Jesus has said he was the bread that came down from heaven. From heaven. Over and over, this happened in Israel's journey in the wilderness. They grumbled and they complained against Moses and against God. Exodus 16 verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And in verse 8, Moses said, The Lord has heard your grumbling and your, your grumbling against me and against Him. You see, when you grumble against the Word of God, you grumble against God. When you grumble against the Gospel, you grumble against Christ. Your grumbling is not against us, Moses said, but against the Lord. It's translated by several English words, words like murmuring, muttering, whispering, 
We see the Pharisees and scribes doing this many times throughout the gospel. Luke 5, Luke 15, John chapter 7. Here in this passage, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He says in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Just as a side note, notice the downward trend of grumbling over the things of God. Grumbling over them leads to disputing about them. Look at it in verse 41, they grumbled. Verse 52, they disputed among themselves. Now they're fighting with one another with words. That's what disputing is. Fighting together with words. This grumbling implies abject unbelief. And in verse, and, and, uh, this unbelief is centered in the Jewish religious leaders. They are in the, they are in the synagogue. And we would assume that it was the Jewish leaders that questioned Christ about all this and no doubt whispered and murmured to those in the crowd about what he had said, about who he was. And we finally see the culmination of their unbelief in the trial of Christ and his subsequent crucifixion. The message of their grumbling and their hardness of heart was the subject of the Old Testament prophets. Zechariah 7 verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words the Lord of hosts had sent through his spirit by the prophets. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen warned them, you stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as did your fathers, so do you. And what did they do to him? They stoned him to death. Because he told the truth. Humanity has not changed its opinion or its attitude towards the truth of God's word. They didn't like his claim. That he was the eternal life giver. They didn't like him saying he was the bread of life that came down from heaven. And from verses 42 and 52, we see that they were speaking very negatively to him. They reasoned from their dark human lostness. And this is what they said. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom we know? We know your mother and father. How can you now say? How can you now tell us that you are from heaven? We know who you are. You're just the son of a carpenter. He was making the same claims that he had made earlier in chapter 5 verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking more to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath. But not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he called himself the son of God, making God his father and making himself equal with God. He's doing the same thing here. And they hated him for it. And they wanted to kill him. Like the Jews of Judea, 
These Galileans hardened their hearts toward him because they connected with his assertion that he was from heaven and therefore God in the flesh. Sometimes when divine truth is rejected and scorned, God extends judicial hardening of hearts. This happens when the truth is divinely, when this happens, the truth is divinely obscured by God to the ears of people who harden their hearts against Him. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to have you turn to a couple of passages here. Isaiah 6. Notice verses 8 to 10. Isaiah has seen God lifted up high. He's seen Him in His temple, His heavenly temple, and the smoke, and the angels, and the crying of holy, holy, holy. And and He sees the... He says, woe am I. He looks at the earth and He says, we're all lost and undone. It's, it, it's, all, a, it's all forsaken. And notice verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And so he said, Go, and here's what you tell the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's rough. What is God doing? He is extending judicial hardening of hearts. Because of the hardness and rejection of people to His Word. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Beginning at verse 10. Then the disciples came. And said to him, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you, now notice this, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The ones outside, the ones that do not believe, the ones that reject, the ones who cannot see, the ones who will not and cannot hear, to them it's been hidden. Now drop down to verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the ones outside, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they barely hear. With their eyes they are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah's prophecy is coming true. And it's still that way today. 
And this is his, his prophecy is stated again. We'll come to it again in chapter 12 of John, verses 37 to 40. Jesus makes this statement over and over again, quoting the prophet Isaiah. For what reason? Because they reject the truth of God. They reject the word of God. They reject the gospel of Christ. So serious is rejecting the truth of God's word that there will come a time in the future when God will send a strong delusion, a severe deception, which will cause people to have refused the love of Christ found in the gospel to believe what is false. They will believe falsehoods. It's happening today. It's happening in so many places. In evangelicalism, it's happening. They will believe lies instead of the truth because they hate the truth. Because the truth exposes their sin. Jesus, who knows the heart, the hearts and minds of all people, said to them, Don't grumble among yourselves. He knew what they were doing. He not only heard the whispers of their lips, he saw the real speech from their hearts. They were talking about him behind his back and to each other, likely, trying to sway the crowd against him. This is what unbelievers do. I remember very clearly, I was in the military. And I'd just been saved. And I, I was like a blowtorch. It just, I, couldn't, I just couldn't keep quiet over anything that God had done. And so I was just telling everybody that I'd been saved. And, saved from what? You know, that's the only way. Saved from what? I said, my sin. I was saved from my sin. And there was one guy who claimed to be a Christian... One guy who claimed to be a Christian in my unit there. And he kept, he kept grumbling. Every time I would say something, he'd grumble. I don't believe he was a Christian. He was just like the rest of them. He just called himself one. But this is what people do. They want to turn people away from The truth. And it's a very serious thing. Don't grumble among yourselves, he said. These words are, these words are not addressed to Jesus, but to others present with these people in undertones of gossipy murmuring. This is a dangerous practice because it presupposes That divine truth can be sorted out by talking things over and seeking to persuade people by human cunning and argumentation. And all it really does is divert one's attention away from the grace of God in Christ. Gordon Lightfoot comments, So long as a man remains and is content to remain confident in his own ability without divine help to assess experience and the meaning of experience, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe. Only the Father can move him 
to this step and with incalculable and final results. Well said. Now notice the part of this text that is the most difficult for most people. And when I say most people, I mean Christian people. So let's examine it together as it actually is and as it says. Verse 44 is the verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44 is the negative counterpart of verse 37. On the one hand, you have people who come to Christ and believe, who are promised eternal life and resurrection. And on the other hand, you have people who are said cannot come unless there is a condition met, not by them, but by God drawing them to Christ. In both cases, they are promised to be raised on the last day. The combination of both of these verses proves that the drawing activity of the Father is not a work of prevenient grace, but of selective grace. Prevenient grace is grace that is given to all people without exception. That's not what we see here. If that were the case, if it were prevenient grace, then then everyone would be saved and everyone would come to Christ. We know that that is not happening and it will not happen. Why would Jesus use this negative connotation in verse 44 if people could come to Christ on their own? Why would he say it if they could come on their own? It would be meaningless to make such a statement. No, this is a this is a deliberate act of God in bringing people to Christ. There is more than just moral influence among men happening here. It is a divine act of drawing people who were chosen before creation to their appointed destination. That's why this is so beautiful. Because those who are appointed to that destination, are humbled to find that they are part of it. They realize they don't have any deserving of it. So let's look at some of the words. And I've only got five minutes. I'm not going to finish it, folks. Sorry. I'll get this first point in, maybe. Number one, or first, the first thing we see here. Uh, in explaining this and what what is happening, what God is doing in people's hearts is is first there is an inability of the natural person, the natural man, to believe in Christ. There is an inability. Notice the words: "No one can come to me." What can that possibly mean other than what it says it means? 
The words used here describe an incapacity and an inability on a universal context. No one can come to me. No one has the capacity of coming to me. No one has the ability to come to me, which is equal to believing in me. No one can come to me. Being born in sin and separated from God spiritually, every human being is completely incapable of coming to Christ on their own. In other words, it is impossible for them to come to Christ and for them to believe in Him. It's an impossibility. If this were not true, Jesus would not have made this statement, for He cannot lie. The Lord is not surprised at the unbelief He sees in these Jews. He does not argue with them in an effort to convince them to believe in Him. He simply He simply tells them that they are not among those the Father has chosen to give to Him. At another place, He, he says to their face, You will die in your sins. How would you like to be told that by the Son of God? This would be considered by many not to be a wise choice of witness to those whom we share the gospel with. But here it is, right in the words of Scripture. No one can come. This is what Jesus chose to tell them at this point. In His claiming to be the bread of life who gives eternal life to those who come to Him. Anyone who comes to me, he says, I'll give them life and I'll raise them up. But no one can come to me. Sounds like a, sounds like a, uh, miss, a missed, uh, opportunity. Sounds like a, an impossible predicament. They're shocking words, to to say the least. They're shocking because they knock the pride right out from under every person who thinks that they can come or get to God on their own. The props are gone. There is no getting to Him through self-determination. What we have here in plain language is the doctrine of divine, unconditional election. God doing His work of choosing and saving His own. John Deffenbaugh writes, The doctrine of election is a part of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in man's salvation. Ultimately, man does not choose God. God chooses man. Men do not open their hearts to Jesus. God opens men's hearts and minds to Him. It is God who chooses to save men, not men who choose to be saved. Those whom the Father hath chosen will choose to trust in His Son, but not, but only because they have first been chosen by God. Men are called to make a choice regarding Jesus Christ, 
But all who choose to trust Christ and are and those who have first been chosen are those who have been first been chosen by the Father. This is a difficult doctrine for some to accept, but it is taught in the Bible. It was hard for me for many years. But with persistence and the help of the Holy Spirit, I saw it. And once I saw it, it was the most glorious thing. For, my, for the salvation that I claimed to have was not of my doing. It was God's doing. And I don't have it because of anything I did. I have it because of what He did. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He said in in Acts chapter 13, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts chapter 16, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to pay attention to what Paul was saying. See, it's all God's doing. No one can come. I have to stop. I wanted to get to this word unless. You have the notes, uh, but I'm going to add those back in. Hopefully, if I can remember where I stopped here next time. Um, The word unless is a beautiful word. Because it gives us hope that... Many people will indeed come to Christ. It is the hope of the church. It is the hope of missions around the world. Unless. Nobody can come. Nobody has the ability to come or believe. Unless. So that's where we pick it up next time. I trust That you're beginning to see the truth of what God says in in regard to these most important doctrines. That you really can't understand how or why God does, does things this way. Unless you understand the depth of depravity and lostness of man in his sin. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for... This Lord's Day for the Word of God, which sometimes shakes us up, sometimes causes us to be uncomfortable. But Lord, your truth to us in Christ is peace. It's comfort. It's blessing. Because dead in our sins, we had no way of coming to you. No way of believing in you. You did the work. You are the unless in the verse. And so I pray, Father, that you would open hearts to your truth. Persuade the minds of your people to cling to the truth of your word and to rally around it. I pray this for the name in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our sovereign Lord. Amen.
All right. <clears throat> I could have gone on probably another 